Welcome to the Real Time Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Dial, and this is my co-host, Sarah. Hello, everyone. At Joybelie, we help you grow your own food and remedies so that you can create health and wellness for your family naturally. Today, we're going to be talking about foraging food. So Sarah, according to Yale University, an estimated 5 million people subsist from foraging. Many of these people live a nomadic lifestyle. Now, this is worldwide. What do you think? They might be underestimating. I thought when I saw that I was thinking too, but it does say subsist on foraging, not people who are foraging as part of their lifestyle. I think it's different, right? Probably, but there are a large number of the nomadic groups who may subsist on foraging for a few months of the year or for specific portions of their diet but interact with the modern world enough that they aren't classified as fully subsisting on it. I'm thinking of the Bedouins in Israel, since they will harvest the wild food that is available, but they're also buying food from the grocery store, etc. But they're olive oil and their olives and a ton of dates, etc. that they're, well, that they're consuming are coming from their foraging endeavors. Right. Right. But because they have access to the grocery stores, they have a wider diet than their traditional diet. I, I think now that you mentioned Israel, I think in Israel you have a really unique situation because in Israel they plant food in the landscaping on purpose so that people will have food who, who might be less fortunate or who are foraging. I, I know when we were visiting just down the road from where we were staying, there was hedges of lavender and rosemary and there were pomegranate trees dropping their fruit on the sidewalk and so there was food everywhere and kumquats and carob carob was everywhere and also wild almond was everywhere and there was that really delicious fruit that i can never remember its name but it was more of a springy one it wasn't a kumquat though was it a citrus it was a citron type but it wasn't a full citrus it lost its leaves in the winter And there was also citrus trees that would drop fruit too. So I think though you have a unique situation in Israel because they also have that climate where, you know, the almonds are flowering in February. The rosemary never dies back. Yeah, you have food somewhere in Israel almost all the time, especially around, you know, the Dead Sea area where the dates are and up in Jerusalem, there's food almost all the time. But most most areas of the world don't have that kind of climate where there's something growing all the time. And so that means that some kind of food preservation is necessary. True. You can't survive on pine needle tea for the entire winter. Not here, no. And and it would be kind of drying, I think. So what exactly is foraging, Sarah? How would you define it? I know you love to forage. You've always loved to forage. Well, To define it as simply as possible, it's searching for, identifying, and then collecting food from the wild or from disused land. So you may not qualify the side of a walking trail in the middle of your town as a wild area, but it is disused land that has wild plants and volunteer plants growing on it. So it is open to foraging. So you could also classify as some use of public land for that. Like you could technically collect acorns from your local city park if they had oak trees. So 
in that case, you'd have to have some skill level because obviously you can't collect acorns and eat them because of the high tannin level. So you have to have some skills on how to manage them before you could call them food, right? Yeah, but white oak can actually be eaten without a lot of preparation. So it, again, depends on identification. Some of that is just leaf shape, bark color, nut shape in the case of oaks. It's just general part of learning to identify the plants around you. If you learn what plants are around you, then you can learn which ones are used for food. And how to use them for food. And how to use them. Personally, I prefer learning the identification first rather than going, oh, this plant would be interesting to use for food. Let's go find this plant because you don't know for sure it's in your area. So if you go out and you find plants you don't know, identify them first, then figure out if they can be used for food. Good plan. So there's lots of foods that we can forage even now. Things like berries, nuts, fruit, mushrooms, greens, and even some seeds that could be then ground and used as a flower substitute, for instance. And one of the keys to when you're looking at fruit, uh, wild fruit, is to know when is the fruit ripe in your area, the domestic fruit, like for instance, strawberries. When strawberries start showing up in your farmer's market, that's when to go look for them, wild strawberries up on the mountainside. Wild strawberries usually come in a couple of weeks after the ones at the market, actually, because the wild strawberries seem to like coming out in July, I find, with maybe a few being available in late June, whereas the farmed strawberries are usually ready mid-June. Okay. But yes, peak strawberry season at the farmer's market is likely to be peak strawberry season in the wild. And if you can't find them low down, go a little higher up. And and that's a good point, because if you miss what you're wanting to forage in a lower elevation, you can always go higher up to find it because the season can be extended if you're foraging. Whereas if you're growing in your garden, you have just that one area, one climate and one, basically one season. So for instance, right now we've had a tremendous morel mushroom harvest in our area. And it started about probably six weeks ago. And the mushroom pickers here are just, they just increase the elevation, go higher and higher and higher. And that extends the season for foraging for morels. And there's other things too like that, like like you mentioned, wild strawberries, um, huckleberries. Wild raspberries, thimbleberries, and also the herbs if you're foraging for stuff like St. John's wort. In town where I am, the St. John's wort is almost spent already, and it hasn't even started at higher elevations to blossom. Right. And some people, when they talk about foraging, they talk about hunting and fishing and that kind of foraging too. And I just want to clarify that even though that is a kind of foraging, we're not talking about hunting or fishing today. Um, We want to focus just on fruits, vegetables, nuts, mushrooms, seeds. Minimal equipment gathering. Yeah, the things that you don't need a lot of equipment. Um, In most cases, you won't need a permit to do it. So let's talk about the benefits of foraging. There's more than just the free food. There's other benefits too to foraging. What is it about foraging that you value, Sarah? Well, it gives you a broader nutritional range that you can get from your food. Also, each individual plant or fruit that you're foraging is going to have a higher nutritional value than an equivalent plant that was harvested who knows where and shipped for who knows how long to get to your dinner table. A easy example of that is in my garden, I have a lot of lambs quarters growing 
And if I go out and forage in my yard for the wild lamb's quarters, it's going to give me a higher nutritional value than a thing of spinach from the grocery store because I just harvested it. It hasn't had time to degrade. It hasn't had time to lose nutrients. And I know also that there's no sprays, there's no pesticides on it because it's from my own yard. And it started with a higher nutrition. That too. Right. But it has an identical texture. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. It's gritty. Slightly gritty, but still tasty. It cooks down exactly the same though in pasta sauce. Yes. Yes. In pasta sauce. Um, I like stinging nettle better than lamb's quarters actually. Thankfully, I don't have any of that in my yard. (laughs) I do. come out to your place. I do. I have lots of stinging nettle, but I let it grow for a reason. If growing some of your own food sounds like something you're ready to do right now, I've got the perfect next step for you. My Fill Your Salad Bowl workshop is a concise workshop that will show you how to grow enough greens to fill a salad bowl every day. That's a great first step, just to fill a salad bowl. It's not overwhelming and anyone can do it. You can do it even if you don't have any land, even if there's three feet of snow covering your garden, even if you've killed houseplants in the past, and even if you don't think you have a green thumb. Here's what we cover in this workshop. Now remember, it's a concise workshop. It's not gonna take a long time to go through, so everyone's gonna have enough time to do this. You'll learn three different salad green growing methods that you can implement right away. You'll learn the exact methods I use to keep my salad bowl full so I never run out, even if I have unexpected company. You'll also learn where to cut costs and still be successful growing salad greens at home. You'll learn the ideal equipment to use if you want to grow greens faster and easier. The unique pitfalls to avoid with indoor and container growing. You'll learn how to save a crop that goes wrong, where to find organic seed at reasonable prices, how to store your seed so it stays viable for years so that you can save money now on bulk seed purchases. And you'll learn the health benefits of sprouts, microgreens, and healthy greens and how to optimize these benefits in the way you grow them and the way you store them. We'll also give you 17 ideas for using homegrown salad greens in the kitchen so they never get mundane. If you're ready to start growing some of your own food and you think salad greens are a great place to start like I do, check the link in the show notes. Also with foraging, you're going to get more exercise than you would just going to the grocery store. It's a great excuse to get outdoors, to walk in the sun or the early morning. And it's educational for kids and adults alike. My daughter's already learning the safe flowers to handle. I'm starting with that because she's already interested in the flowers. Flowers are a great way to start kids, actually. And she's only 19 months and she already knows what a dandelion is. That's because my granddaughter is smart. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's also the fact that it gives you confidence in yourself, a sense of self-reliance, if you will. Of course, free food gives you some protection from inflation attacking your grocery budget. It also gives you protection over time because you're able to nurture and care for the wild resources in your area as well as taking advantage of them. That is a great point about taking care of the resources. We'll we'll get a little bit more into this later, but um, I just want to point out now that you've mentioned it, that as you're foraging, you can also scatter seed. 
and so that you can increase the amount of of food to forage in your area simply by encouraging those plants that are edible. For instance, when we go mushroom foraging, we go with a with a wicker basket so that any spores that fall from the mushrooms will go on the paths as we're walking back. And that encourages the mushrooms to spread. And we put the stem butts of the mushrooms into an area where the mushroom can find what it needs to grow as well. That's right. Since mushrooms will grow off of their own stem butts. It's called cloning. That's right. And also, it's the same with berries. Like you might be picking berries and there might be some that are past their prime. And rather than just leaving them there, the seeds are on the berries and you can take those past their prime berries and you can scatter them in the path to encourage more food plants to grow. Or at least just off the path. Or in a section that you see looks like it would be a good spot for them and has decent soil and none of that plant currently growing there. That's right. And then you can also decide, uh, for instance, ramps are often foraged in the spring. A ramp is like a wild garlic or a wild leek. They're endangered in some areas because they've been over harvested. So you can make a decision to only take the tops and leave the roots to grow. And that will encourage the wild populations to continue to grow. There's also a sense of pride and accomplishment when you have a meal that has a large portion of the food foraged, even if that is foraging from, say, your yard, from plants that have self-seeded. I had a lot of lettuce this spring from that, and I have a bunch of lettuce going to seed, so I will have plenty more next year. And I just discovered this morning that I have a volunteer squash plant, so that will be interesting. It's in my strawberry bed. Huh? That is interesting. So if you have a volunteer plant in your garden, then when you harvest it, is that foraging since you didn't plant it? I classify it as foraging. It's the same as when I'm harvesting the weeds from my garden and using them for food. I classify that as foraging. It's also weeding the garden. Harvesting parsley root is technically weeding the garden because I have a lot of second year parsley plants. So it's thinning out the plants. It's a little bit of weeding, a little bit of thinning and a lot of technical foraging. One thing you didn't mention about the benefits of foraging is that as you learn to forage, that's a skill that you have that you can also pass on to your children, you can pass on to your grandchildren, and nobody can take that skill away from you. It's something that, you know, you might use it for a little while and then forget about it for a while and then you can use it again later. It's not something that, you know, like the grocery store where you're spending money and you never get that money back. Also, when you're foraging, you can find fruit that you can't find in the grocery store. I just remembered that you rarely, if ever, find mulberries in a grocery store or at a farmer's market. But if you are foraging, you can sometimes find mulberry trees in people's yards, on boulevards, etc. And those are absolutely delicious berries. In Israel, I found out that close to my workplace, there was two mulberry trees just on the side of the street. And if I hadn't had a foraging mindset, I wouldn't have even thought about identifying those trees and realizing that they were edible. Because I did have the foraging mindset, I ended up learning that mulberries are absolutely delicious. So that was in Israel. And here in Canada, you also forage, I know. What berries do you forage here? Well, there's the Saskatoons, strawberries, wild raspberries. I've found the odd brambleberry and as a child I was taught how to forage salmon berries and I still miss those because those were delicious and then sometimes apples and pears even you can forage. So no matter where you live whether it's in the tropical area or the semi-tropical 
arid Israel or cold and temperate Canada, there is wild food to forage. One of the other benefits that we didn't mention is also situational awareness. I find that having the foraging mindset and having learned to forage by walking in general forested areas means that even just walking in the city, I'm paying more attention to my surroundings. I'm constantly subconsciously identifying plants, bushes, black widow spiders, black widow spiders that are crawling across my path when I'm walking. (laughs) That was definitely a big one this morning. But it also means that I will end up spotting things that people have lost and have an opportunity to return to them like keys. So being aware is a very good side effect from learning foraging. So there was some time periods in history where foraging was essential. Um, One of those time periods was during the World Wars when rationing was in effect. Foraging allowed families to increase their nutrition because foraged food wasn't rationed. But meat was rationed, fat was rationed, animal protein was rationed. Grain was rationed. Sugar was rationed. Butter was rationed. Anything imported was rationed. But the food growing in the hedgerows, the foods growing in the gardens was not rationed. So at a time when food is being rationed or at a time like the Great Depression when food is scarce, foraging becomes essential. I was watching the TV series, the BBC TV series, Wartime Farm, and they were talking about foraging mushrooms and foraging berries and even foraging pharmaceutical plants, like plants for the pharmaceutical companies, um, and how they actually engaged the children from the schools in the summertime to go through the, the wild places and gather rose hips for vitamin C and stinging nettles and those kinds of things. There are times when there's kind of organized foraging going on, which is interesting to me. It definitely shows that nature always has an abundance. Absolutely. Foraging reminds you that there's an abundance everywhere. You just have to look for it and maybe be willing to be less picky about what you're eating. And also to appreciate the wild foods more. Now, foraging wasn't always encouraged during times like the World Wars and the Great Depression, since governments did not necessarily want to disclose how dire things were getting. Right. So a lot of the times they are more likely to encourage gardening or... Like the Victory Gardens. Like the Victory Gardens or limiting consumption of certain resources versus encouraging people to forage, which might imply that there weren't a lot of resources to go around. Right. I I noticed in looking at history that there seems to be like a pattern of governments uh, recommending foraging for the poor and then not recommending foraging and actually shaming people for foraging, depending on what the agenda is. And I th- I think there could be people that are listening today that have uh, memories of foraging as children, but have maybe some emotional attachment to that, maybe some shame or maybe some negativity about it, that foraging says something about who they are that they don't want to to embrace. And I think that it's important to realize that nature hasn't changed, that nature is still abundant, the food is still nutritious, and the food is still good, and it's kind of a propaganda that has put a negative spin on foraging when it should be 
something of something to rejoice over, something to feel glad about. I remember as a child when my family was picnicking at the beach, often the adults were occupied with things that kids didn't participate in, like drinking. And I would grab my sand pail from the beach and I would go find a blackberry bush and I would just fill the blackberry bush with berries and fill my mouth with berries too. And that was something as a child that I could kind of escape what was going on in my family and I could rejoice in the abundance of nature. And I think that foraging can have that abundance for us today if we reframe maybe what we learned as children about free food and instead reframe it to look at the abundance we have. This can be what we want it to be. I found in our small town that foraging can also be a way to start talking to people about what you're harvesting. Last year when I was harvesting the hawthorn berries from a bush that was close to one of the paths, I ended up talking to a couple of people in town about the herbal use of the hawthorn tree and also just in general about the rose bush that was nearby that had ripe rose hips on it as well as the other plants that were in that same vicinity that could be harvested. So it's a very good way to start a discussion with a stranger as well. Conversations are always good. The more connections we can make with strangers, the more friendships we have and that's a great benefit. So what we really want is to put a positive spotlight onto foraging. It's a tool for self-reliance, and it's a great way to supplement food costs. It's also a very good way to feel confident in yourself, in your abilities, and just to remove some of the doubt and uncertainty that can often arise, particularly if we pay too much attention to the news. I agree. If you are ready to start on your herbal journey to get to know herbs and make your own medicine, I've got the perfect next step for you. My membership, the DIY Herb of the Month Club, will help you get to know your herbal allies by studying one herb at a time. And we make a game of it. You will go on a 30-day journey with an assignment to do every day that will only take you 10 or 15 minutes. You'll go on a monthly quest to build your confidence so that you can learn to rely on your herbal allies. You'll invest just 5 to 15 minutes a day of hands-on guided exercises to gain knowledge of each month's herbal ally. You'll also learn how to grow, forage, or find each month's herb. You'll study the historical context of the medicinal and or culinary uses of each herb. You'll create a personal materia medica for long-term reference. You'll also study the modern scientific studies and evaluate their methodology and conclusions. And you'll engage your senses both logically and intuitively to get to know each herb really, really well so that you can use it confidently. So stir up some recipes with me and start using your new herbal allies for focused hands-on learning inside the DIY Herb of the Month Club. So I hope you'll decide to join me. The link is in the show notes. So Sarah, there are some tips that 
as experienced foragers, we want to offer to people who maybe are just exploring this for the first time to keep them safe. So let's talk about things that people need to know or do to make sure that their foraging experience is a safe one. So the first one I would suggest is pay attention to what the weatherman says for the day and make sure that you have appropriate clothing. Often you're foraging in places that are a little bit away from cell service and there could be sudden storms, there could be uh, washouts on the road and you want to pay attention and make sure you're dressed appropriately and you have the appropriate tools with you. And in line with dressing appropriately, it's not just dressing for the weather. If you are planning on going out in the woods, do not wear shorts. Or sandals. Wear closed-toed shoes, closed-top shoes, and wear long pants. Because making the acquaintance of a rose bush is a lot more pleasant if it can't scratch your legs. <laughs> and not only roses, but also spiders and snakes and... Blackberries. Scary squirrels. Hopefully not too scary squirrels. Usually in the woods, the squirrels are a lot more scared of you than they are in the city. But yes, squirrels can be petrifying. The other thing that is really important is to make a absolute certain positive identification of any plant that you plan to forage for food or medicine. Which can mean taking a field guide with you to help with identification or partnering up with someone who has already been foraging in your area to learn the specific plants. If it's your first time going out, take a basket and a pair of pruning shears. And if you encounter a plant you don't know that you can tell is not going to be poisonous. In other words, if you see a really pretty umbrella-shaped white flower that is in a marshy area, do not take a sample of it to go home and identify. It is most likely a poison hemlock. Or a giant hogweed. And neither of which you want to handle. But if you see a small white umbrella-shaped flower with feathery leaves that's growing in a dry area, it's most likely, or at least possibly, Queen Anne's Lace or Yarrow and is more likely to be one you can take a sample of. I would like to suggest that nobody who is inexperienced take any white umbral flower until they've made a perfectly sure identification. Look at white umbral flowers as being potentially toxic until you've made the identification. So always have a field guide and make a positive identification. The other thing I recommend is often there are, even in the city, classes that you can take called herb walks that will help you identify. If you've never, even in Israel, actually, there were herb walks you could take and foraging walks with an expert that can help you identify plants for the first time. And also they can give you tips on how to harvest, when is the best time to harvest, and then how to prepare the food. And so I, I do recommend going on a herb walk or a foraging walk with an expert. And if there isn't one in your area already, then talk to the people at your public library and they might be able to arrange one or maybe your gardening club in your local area. Then there are some other rules. Cars can splash a lot of crud onto the plants growing near the roadway. So as a general rule, uh, we suggest not to forage within 50 feet of a major highway or 25 feet of a roadway and never forage in a dog park. You're laughing about that, but I actually saw on Facebook two days ago somebody saying that they were foraging in their dog park 
Yuck. And personally, I avoid foraging within six to eight feet of any path I know is used for walking a lot of dogs. Same deal. Even if the yarrow does look absolutely beautiful. I think it might have a little bit high nitrogen content. It could be. That's why it's so beautiful. Also, um, if you plan to forage, have a basket or a bag with you. I like to have a bag in the car so that if we're driving and I see a nice berry bush or something, we can stop and I have someplace. I have often been known to borrow my husband's hat as a basket, which is fine unless you're foraging deep purple berries, in which case that's not such a great thing. So make sure that you you have something to put your your foraging treasure in. I've borrowed my husband's shirt. Shirt. Yep. A shirt. Yep. <laughs> it was apples. Okay, so I understand then. And he probably didn't mind offering his shirt up. He already had taken it off because he was enjoying the sun. Okay. Also, when foraging, you want to be aware of endangered species. In BC, where we are, there are several varieties of plants known as orchids. And those plants, if they're even touched, can have their root systems damaged and never come back to that area again. So just be aware of any of the very rare or very endangered species that are in your area, whether that's a lady slipper orchid or trillium, trilliums or other plants, and avoid foraging or sometimes even touching a plant that you recognize as an endangered plant. Also, there could be rules where you live that are protecting endangered plants. So you want to be aware of what the rules are. Make sure that what you're doing is legal. Sometimes you can forage on one area, but you can't forage in a park. You can't forage in a national park, for instance. So you want to be aware of what the rules are where you want to forage. If you want to forage on private land, make sure you ask for permission. Don't just walk onto somebody's land and forage because there's a, something there. Lots of people might have dogs or they could charge you with trespassing. So you want to be careful there. Let's talk about what can be foraged. We addressed it a little bit, but let's be specific. Like berries, strawberries, Saskatoons. Saskatoons are called service berry in some areas. Ooh, the ground dogwood berries. Those are a fun one to forage. They're also known as bunch berries. They're edible and they're quite dry. I was going to say, aren't they mealy? But they actually can make a very good uh, berry sauce. And they have a lot of antioxidants because of their bright red color. And they're one that you wouldn't normally think of foraging because it just looks like a really decorative flower in the spring. And then the piles of red berries that grow in the center of the flower aren't necessarily one that you would automatically think, ooh, this looks tasty. Kinnikinnik is another berry that's edible, but it's again very dry and mealy and more of a survival-ish food. But it is interesting to snack on sometimes. And if you see kinnikinnik growing then usually there's wild blueberries on the ground close by. Yep, wild blueberries in our area of BC, the wild blueberry bushes are all of about three inches tall at most. So they're very hard to spot unless you know what you're looking for. And there's also the roughly five inch tall grouseberry bushes. which They, they grow in the same spot. They grow in the same spot, but the berries have a slightly different flavor. They taste like pears to me. Pears are bananas crossed with berries. They're and good. And hyper sweet. They're good. It's also a good idea if you're going for something like that, like blueberries or grouseberries, that you have a special tool called a berry rake to harvest them. 
And then there's nuts that can be foraged too. We have wild hazelnuts here. Um, some places have black walnuts, uh, hickory nuts. And depending on where you are, if you're in the south, you could have pecans. There could be beech nuts. There are a wide variety of nuts that can be foraged that you can eat without extra processing. And then there's the ones that can be foraged that you can consume with extra processing, like the acorns. Right. So it's important to know what you're foraging and if it needs any special care. In some areas, butternuts, which are from the walnut family, are actually considered endangered and you're not even allowed to possess the nuts. So if, you, if you're in that area, just be aware, in some places, butternuts are endangered and you can't forage for them. And where I'm living, I have a black walnut tree and my neighbor has a butternut tree. Right. But we're in Canada. This is, this is in one of the states. I can't remember which one. but Interesting. But yeah, it's illegal to harvest the nuts and it's illegal to possess the nuts or even to have a tree in your yard. Okay, that's weird because yeah. I would think you, if it's endangered, you would want people to be growing it. Yeah, it's some laws are strange. They don't make sense. I wanted to add one more detail about nuts. Often people who have a nut tree in their yard, like their front yard or their backyard, would be more than happy if you stop by and talk to them to share some of the autumn nut drop with you if you're willing to do some raking and clean up. Because most walnut trees especially will produce way more than one family will consume. So if you are in a city and you do see someone with say a black walnut tree, talk to them before the nuts start falling and maybe you'll get permission to join them and help them clean up the leaf drop and the nuts. Great idea. Great idea. So the other thing that is easy to forage is the wild weeds like dandelion, burdock, stinging nettle. Do you have a favorite, Sarah? Well, I definitely like the dandelions. It's one of the easiest plants to teach a child to identify since most children will gravitate to picking the flowers anyway. And it also doesn't sting you like stinging nettle and has many of the same nutritional value benefits as stinging nettle. Other plants that can get away from people and let you harvest them in the wild can include mint, sometimes onions, and sometimes garlic. Wild ramps is from the garlic family, right? but if somebody leaves garlic in their field by accident, you can also get volunteer garlic in farmer's fields or in your own garden, as my garden demonstrated this past year. Another thing that people maybe haven't thought about is salt can be foraged. It involves uh, gathering up seawater and letting it evaporate. And uh, so there are wild salts. And a lot of times commercial operations will go in and make a salt flat and harvest the salt that way. But you can harvest salt by gathering the seawater and doing it yourself. I knew someone who actually did that everywhere she traveled. She would go to the ocean and gather the salt or the water and evaporate it and make salt and then take it home as a memento of her trip. She did it in Hawaii, uh, for instance. She did it in the Mediterranean. She did it in Vancouver. So that's something fun to think about too. And there was a time when uh, people did forage for salt. Well, that was the crux of Gandhi's movement was going and getting salt from the ocean because they had been forbidden from harvesting salt for themselves and were being forced to purchase it with the taxes. The Great Salt Rebellion. Yep. So that's a case where foraging was a lot more than just foraging. It was a political movement. 
Other things you can forage include mushrooms. And you can also forage for firewood. Can't eat firewood, though. But you can use it for cooking. But you need it for cooking. And actually, there is a technique of burning birch to make a type of salt as well. Oh, I think I read about that. I read about it when I was quite young, but I just remembered that just now. Hey, you can also forage for maple syrup and birch syrup. Oh, good point. It's a little bit more complicated. Um, a little bit more involved complicated. and complex, but it is an option if you have a good grove that's nearby. Right. And something to think about when you're identifying trees during the summer and autumn so that you can mark which trees could be tapped for syrup in the spring. And you can also tap black walnuts. Yes, I was just going to say that. You can tap um, maple tree, any maple tree. It doesn't have to be a sugar maple. You can tap any any nut tree. So you can tap butternuts. You can trap, trap. You can tap normal, like, English walnuts as well. It's amazing to me the actual abundance of food that we have that's growing, depending on where you live, growing all around you. And it's basically wasted. I I know I've heard stories of people who 100%, they they challenge themselves to have 100% of their food foraged for a certain period of time. And then they post on social media about it. But really, it's not just a novel thing. It's as long as you have the skills to be able to identify it and know how to prepare it. And I think it's really important that if you have a child or a grandchild, that you not only learn the skills, but you also pass it on to the next generation. Because these skills are a gift of our ancestors to us. And even if you don't feel you need foraging in your current situation, you could end up in a situation where you do need foraging. Hiking accidents happen, getting lost happens. I have a friend who ended up walking between two towns on back roads, and the only reason he made it was because a chickadee showed him where to find the wild strawberries. So prepare yourself, because if you have skills and knowledge, it cannot be taken away from you. Absolutely. So in this episode, we've been talking about what foraging is, how to forage for food, and we talked about some tips for safe foraging, like dressing appropriately, uh, being aware of your surroundings, always making a positive identification, and having a field guide handy so that you can. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about mushrooms not just foraging mushrooms, but specifically growing mushrooms in your garden or on your kitchen counter. In the meantime, we have one positive action, like always, that we want you to take after listening to this episode. I have a foraging book on the Joy Believe Farm website that will teach you how to use wild plants in salads, pâtés, pestos, dips, soups, and more. The link is in the show notes, so you can find that post and actually download the ebook. Thanks, Sarah, for joining me today, as always. And thank you, listeners. And remember to share, like, subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any episode. Bye for now.